The paleo concept, or this idea of gene environment mismatch, that we are stone-aged people living in a modern environment, um, that only gets us so far in understanding um, why it is that certain things make us sick and other things might make us healthy or keep us healthy. That a better way to approach that problem is one that thinks about our relationship with the microbial world and that we've co-evolved uh, on this planet along with microbes since the very beginning of multicellular life and that that has huge implications. Uh, and our bodies invest a, a great deal of effort in trying to maintain a microbiome that is less harmful and more helpful to us. That we can sometimes help that along by making certain lifestyle choices, eating certain diets, etc., or we can make things far, far worse. Welcome to the Metagenics Institute podcast, a place where you can hear from leading experts in health and wellness from scientists and researchers to internationally recognized clinicians. Enjoy this insightful conversation with host Nathan Rose. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Metagenics Institute podcast. I'm your host, Nathan Rose, and I'm pleased to be joined today from California and also usually from uh, New Mexico, but today it's in California. It's Dr. Joe Alcock. Welcome, Joe. Thank you, Nathan. I'm happy to be here. Excellent. So I reached out to you a little while ago because I was really intrigued by some of the content you're creating. Um, you're an emergency uh, room physician, but you've strangely got an interest in uh, evolutionary medicine and also the microbiome. So it doesn't really strike me as, um, you know, someone comes in with a DYI accident or something and they've sawn off a, a pinky and um, you check the vital signs and you'd be thinking about the, the origins of the, the genome and how their microbiome may be affecting this patient. How does it, how, so how does an emergency physician end up thinking so deeply around evolutionary medicine and the microbiome? Well, at least in, in my case, um, I started off uh, training in evolutionary biology. Um, I was not a pre-medical student as an undergraduate. Ah. Uh, I went to UC Santa Barbara, and I had every intention of becoming a field biologist and an, you know, an evolutionary uh, behavioral ecologist. So I went off to Cornell and spent some time uh, learning uh, about behavioral ecology, and then switched gears when I learned about evolutionary medicine. So it really was this idea that you could apply evolutionary biology precepts to medicine that got me interested in the whole field. And that has been kind of a through line for my entire career. So yeah, there probably aren't that many uh, emergency physicians that, that have that background, um, but there are some. And uh, I, I find it personally just it enriches my clinical practice and certainly the intellectual part of the job. And when did the interest in the microbiome begin and, and evolve? I would say around 2007 and 8, right as the field was getting underway, and there was this increased knowledge uh, with, you know, learning when we would sequence the microbial communities in people's guts and uh, other parts of the body, that all of a sudden our eyes were opened to this world, um, this the fact that our bodies are actually an ecology of microorganisms. Um, I found that fascinating from the beginning, and as someone who is interested in topics that have great explanatory power, things like evolution. I found that, wow, we ignored this topic during my medical school training, and yet it seems to be able to explain so much. Uh, so for me, it was a natural 
um, kind of addition to things that I was interested in. Right. And so you you teach uh, evolutionary medicine? I do. Uh, so since about 2008, I taught a undergraduate and graduate level course in the Department of Biology at the University of New Mexico. Uh, I was also taught through the Department of Anthropology. And I have friends who are anthropologists and evolutionary psychologists at the university um, that make that class uh, more interesting. Uh, more recently, I've been focusing mostly on just teaching medical students. So I have an elective and I teach the topic um, to medical students. And again, just for your listeners, the if you were to define evolutionary medicine, it is that intersection between evolutionary biology and all things having to do with human health and disease. So this involves the evolution of our, ourselves, humans, but also the evolution of microbes that we interact with, both ones that we consider pathological and uh, dangerous, say like, I don't know, Klebsiella pneumonia or SARS-CoV-2, uh, but also microbes that are potentially beneficial or, or good for us. Um, we'll say like bifidobacteria infantis, for instance. Yeah. All these things have evolved. We've co-evolved co co along with microbes, uh, both good and bad, to put a, you know, a, a spin on it. Um, and that's important for our health. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, that was the, the reason I, I reached out to you today was to use or look at this framework you, you talk about um, and how it may apply to our audience who, uh, unlike yourself, that are treating these um, acute illnesses and injuries and, and trauma and so forth, but are more looking at chronic diseases, uh, gut issues, autoimmunity. Uh, you've, you've broadcasted and published on areas, and you've got your own podcast on on microbiome and gut and also mental health. So they're probably the two areas I wanted to, to pick your brain today, but also to, to look at it using this um, framework. So... I suppose just to add to that, uh, as you mentioned, it helps you, evolutionary medicine helps you understand like health and disease. So just as a sort of overarching comment, how could this help like with this framework we're about to go into, how could it help practitioners in this sort of integrative space sort of understand the, the disease or their patients better? So I would say that even though that I'm, I'm very interested in the acute phase of illness, and that is the specialty that I'm in, emergency medicine, and we specialize on the what to do in the early stages of illness and when someone's been badly hurt in trauma or have has a, a very severe infection like sepsis. These are the kinds of things that we deal with. But I'm, I'm as interested in you know, chronic disease. And it's absolutely true that uh, this, this may interest many of the people that um, are in your audience. Um, but it's also an interest of mine. Uh, we see people that have complications of diabetes, uh, people who have hypertension, people who have all sorts of chronic gut uh, problems, uh, they come to the emergency room too. Um, maybe some of them would be, would be better served uh, seeing some, some other people who are in your audience rather than me. Um, but this is something that sends people to the emergency room seeking, seeking mm. help um, quite frequently. That makes sense. All right, well, let's start with the evolutionary medicine. And you've got, uh, I think, an interesting, a slightly nuanced um view on the microbiome as you mentioned good and bad but sometimes it sounds like there's there's frenemies and there's conflict and cooperation we'll, we'll dive into that but uh right. yeah probably i was probably simplifying when i when i mentioned yeah. good and bad that you should have seen some invisible air quotes when i when i said that and i think <laughs> that of course most microbes fall somewhere in between and the idea of frenemies that they could be our partners and they can protect us or they can sometimes turn on us 
and make us sick, that's an important way to look at it. Yeah. And to understand that, as I'm understanding, we first need to understand like evolutionary biology and medicine to realize that it's every every genome for themselves, as far as I can see, um, and correct me if I'm wrong, but let's take a first step in evolutionary medicine. I know you obviously do a whole course in this, but what are some of the the the, the highlights or the, the keynotes that you think are important for our audience to understand around evolutionary medicine? A big a big topic that I uh, teach my students is the idea of antibiotic resistance. That there are that we physicians we can become agents of natural selection when we're prescribing you know, powerful antimicrobial agents to our patients. And in fact, we uh, as a you know as a profession as a society powerful medicines we have the potential to um, select for. Uh, resistant and, and potentially dangerous virulent organisms, and we should be cautious when we use these these kinds of medicines. Um, so that's that's part of the the lesson that I, I teach my students. I'm certainly not anti antibiotic. I think that mm. there are lots of patients with severe infections that that benefit from it. It's been one of the major advances in terms of um, uh, reducing suffering in in along the, the in the world for the last you know over 50 years. Uh, but having said that, anything that's powerful and has powerful effects has the potential to um, have unintended consequences. And some of the unintended consequences that we see is this evolution of resistance. So that's that's part of it. Um, it's also very useful to think about uh, the evolution of aging and why it is that uh, we tend to accumulate chronic diseases, why we uh, have problems as we get older. Um, so I teach my students uh, something about that. Um, one big area that's a major focus of mine is the idea that a lot of what we see are and we can identify as diseases a lot of these things are evolved host defenses and that idea really was introduced by uh, a specialist and maybe the founder of evolutionary medicine that's uh, randolph nessie uh, and he and his co-author george c williams who's an evolutionary biologist uh, they wrote a book um, about almost 30 years ago now, that described uh, the idea that a lot of what we think of as being symptoms that are unpleasant, things like um, nausea, uh, headache, fevers, uh, cough, diarrhea, uh, that when we experience these things in diseases, we should at least consider the idea that some of these things may actually help us recover from the disease, and they, they uh, may be useful in helping us um, uh, meet the challenge of, of an infection. That's not to say that we shouldn't ever treat these things. And it, it certainly is a mainstay of my, my therapy and it, as an emergency physician. When someone comes in vomiting, we oftentimes will give them something for nausea. But at least I'm thinking about the possibility that um, what, some of what we're observing may be, may be host defenses. So that's, that's an important uh, feature to think about as well. With some um, host defenses, could it be counterproductive to, to blunt those like fever? As you said, like sometimes it's important and necessary and obviously you want to, uh, the patient to be in you know, little pain and suffering as possible. But are there examples where um, attenuating the host response can actually delay healing? I think very, very, very likely. Um, if you look at the class of medicines, uh, you know, glucocorticoids or corticosteroids, these are, these are you know, commonly used medications, and they, they are part of our toolkit for treating a whole variety of diseases. Uh, think of severe asthma, for instance, or people that have um, severe inflammatory conditions. Um, but the 
glucocorticoids are a double-edged sword. When we use them, it tends to increase the risk that someone can get an infection. And we have to be very, very careful when we, when we blunt the immune system. Um, so that is one of, one of the, the things that I focus on uh, when it comes to treating diseases like sepsis. Um, I tend to be skeptical uh, that the approach of interfering with host defenses, in particular, blocking features of the immune system, is going to benefit patients, especially the way that we typically do it. Yeah, right. Um, there's uh, the, the tr- uh, aging you mentioned. There's this concept, is it antagonistic pleiotrophy, this idea that what might be good for you short term may not be that beneficial to you long term. I think um, Randy Ness gives the example of like um, calcium and calcification. Like if you you break a bone, uh, you want to obviously heal that bone, but that if you've um, been selected for to sort of be resilient and um, overcome breaks and fractures, you're also more likely at risk of like arterial calcification. Is that is that the concept around aging? Can you describe the aging process as well? Sure. So again, George C. Williams, who was Randy Nessie's co-author in the, the book, Why We Get Sick, um, he was uh, one of the people that uh, pioneered this idea of antagonistic pleiotropy. Uh, and the basic idea is that a natural selection will sometimes favor uh, traits that cause us to self-destruct as we get older, as long as those those very same traits give us a benefit at a young age group. Um, and so this was, he, he proposed this as sort of a theoretical idea that this, this could potentially explain aging. The natural selection would, would, would strongly favor um, traits that help us survive infections, starvation, a whole variety of things at, at a young age group, but might make us um, vulnerable to diseases as we get older. And the idea here is that uh, there may not be any silver bullet you know, fix for aging necessarily if our genomes have a lot of these um, a lot of these features. And the more that evolutionary biologists have dug into it, um, the more they find uh, traits that seem to follow uh, this pattern. Um, one idea, and I'm not sure if this has any legitimacy or not, but the idea is that for if you look at kids worldwide, and certainly during human evolution, um, holding on to um, fluids during a diarrheal illness is super important. And a lot of kids do die from dehydration and from diarrhea. Um, and that might help us, or that might promote um, a trait that helps us hold on to sodium uh, when we're as an infant. But the idea would be, suppose that trait was selected for and it helped kids survive um, from severe diarrheal illnesses. If that, um, at older age groups, the idea that um, we should hold on to sodium very very tightly may actually promote hypertension and cardiovascular ah, disease. So that's, yeah. that's one possible example. Um, again, many of these things do, they're still in this realm of kind of hypothetical and they haven't really yeah. been tested. Yeah. One final area around evolutionary medicine, which should hopefully be a, a segue to the microbiome, is this idea about diverging interests between cells and different organisms. So this idea of conflict and also cooperation, um, not only between microbes and let's say the host, but uh, I haven't read too much around this, but as I understand, different um, organs and cells can have conflicting interests, and this um, can be also seen in cancer. So can you describe this idea of this this sort of balance between cooperation and conflict? Right. Um, so genetic conflicts have been described, certainly in cancer. Um, if you think about it, as a multicellular organism, um, 
the biggest challenge that we face, and we've faced ever since multicellular organisms evolved some you know, one, one to two billion years ago, uh, the, the concept essentially is that it's a cooperation problem. Um, we are asking many cells to stop dividing, to stop using resources, to stop being mobile, um, even though it might benefit the genes within those cells. Um, and in order to create specialized functions within the body so that we can evolve a brain. Um, and brain cells, uh, they, don't, they don't contribute to the next generation except to support the whole overall organism, uh, and in particular cells in the, in the germline that are in the ovaries or the testes. So ultimately this boils down to a major um, problem of cooperation. Uh, and you can think of modern life as being a, an issue of trying to get all the cells in your bodies to cooperate and to pull in the same direction. But every so often that breaks down and it breaks down most dramatically uh, in cancer in which um, certain cells can develop somatic mutations that allow them to no longer pay attention to signals coming from their neighbors that tell them to restrain their growth. Um, and that leads to tumors, uh, cells that uh, otherwise would not become mobile and travel throughout the body become mobile and that leads to metastases. Um, so cancer is an, a good example of genetic conflict. Right. So do, we know that think these, these are cells that are in our own bodies. Yeah. Um, we can find, we should expect to find some conflicts between ourselves and microbes with whom we share no genetic material. So these aren't related to us at all. Um, we shouldn't expect necessarily that we should always be getting along with microbes. So when, it, when we think about the body as being uh, a super organism, you know, a composite organism of human cells and microbial cells, then that's like putting this question or this cooperation problem at a whole nother level. And the idea here is that um, this presents a challenge to the organism to try to corral the microbiome and to get all these all these genomes roughly pulling in the same direction. And that 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 <laughs> this is it, it's an exciting area. It's something that most people haven't thought about. Um, but that to me is the is perhaps the challenge uh, that keeps us healthy or makes us sick. Yeah. And this is what I really wanted to dive into now. And it sounds and offline you're saying that you've yeah, been toying with this idea for a long time and and um, synthesizing and trying to pull it together. And so I want to dive in here. So you, you mentioned a couple of things there. There is a view that there's like with this hollow biont that with this superorganism and we're all singing singing from the same hymn book. Um, but there's obviously you know pathogens and so forth. And as you mentioned in the introduction, like. Uh, often um you know uh, in the layman there's this view that it's good versus bad bacteria it sounds like there's a, a lot of gray in between and um it sounds like our microbes can be helpful for us but they could also turn on us <laughs> if things don't suit their needs as well so can you can you further paint a picture of how there's this um this 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 gray area and how that is the sort of the edge between health and disease sure well let's start with cooperation I think that most people, when they learn about the microbiome, um, oftentimes we do start with this framing that the microbiome is a forgotten organ, that it serves a purpose in our bodies, like the liver or the spleen or your kidneys, um, and yet it's made up of cells that are, that are not us. Um, and you mentioned that this concept of holobiont, uh, which we did talk about a bit, a bit earlier, and that is this idea that when it comes to thinking about the unit of natural selection and how we evolved, we really should think about how our bodies uh, and our own genes need to be combined with the genes of the microbiome. 
uh, the, the trillion, the 30 trillion or so cells that that um, that make up this this complex microbial ecology, that we can't think about how we have evolved without thinking about uh, the way that we've evolved alongside these microbes. And in many ways, the fact that we are successful on this planet and we do have offspring, and now it turns out that you know the human biomass is rivaling any other kind of a uh, organism that's ever lived on the planet. So we're we are a successful animal, and we're we're successful. We'll say either because of or in spite of having a microbiome also. So there's there's a lot of uh, utility in thinking about how we've evolved alongside um, all this, our, our microbial house guests. Um, but we shouldn't think, um, I told you I was gonna start with cooperation. So let me give you an example of cooperation <laughs> and how that works. Um, and we are mammals uh, and, the, and the feature of, of mammals, of course, is that uh, the females, female mammals produce milk, um, at least for humans, the major carbohydrate fraction, which is not lactose, um, the second most common carbohydrate fra fraction are things called human milk oligosaccharides. And the human milk, milk oligosaccharides are interesting because infants can't absorb them directly. Um, they need to have a microbial intermediary. And it appears that the selective force that, that produced and shaped human milk oligosaccharides um, and the, the function that they have is, is a microbial function. Uh, so breast milk babies, they grow a microbiome which is dominated by bifidobacterium. And those bifidobacteria have a cooperative relationship both with mom in helping her um, you know, spread her genes onto the next generation. And they cooperate with the baby in terms of uh, preventing colonization and infection with, with pathogenic microbes. So that's that to me, when we think about cooperation between ourselves and our microbiomes, this is the the ultimate example of cooperation. And there are other ones that we can get into. But the point being that that costs something to have that cooperation. It costs mom energy to make these human milk oligosaccharides. It doesn't come for free. And we shouldn't expect that evolution would produce a situation in which the interests of non-related organisms would always be singing from the same hymn book, as you mentioned earlier. And the cooperation that happens in the microbiome is is a is one that is best described as a fragile alliance, uh, and conflicts can happen. So as you know, one of one of my preoccupations, um, both uh, in terms of what I write about on my blog and what I see in in the emergency room, is this idea that people come down with um, catastrophic and overwhelming infections um, that we, that can sometimes manifest as sepsis and septic shock. Well, it turns out that when we do cultures and we, we gather up uh, body samples and try to figure out what is the, the causative factor of um, sepsis, one of the uh, most common uh, microbes uh, comes from, we, we can collect it from the urinary tract. Um, but the, the microbes that invade the urinary tract, they come from the gut and they're oftentimes members of the microbiome. So microbes that were, that were um, perhaps we'll say minding their own business or perhaps even biding their own, their time, um, when they have an opportunity to make us sick, they oftentimes will. Uh, it turns out that 10% you know, of the E. coli that we have in our guts um, contains uh, virulence genes that, that permits them to become um, you know, virulent pathogens. The majority of patients that come, that come in with gram-negative sepsis have a source that we can map to the microbiome. Um, so this is the dark side of the microbiome. 
that these microbes are not always friendly. They don't always make us, they don't always buffer us from disease in the same way that breastfed babies do. Um, sometimes they can actually be the source of disease. And we have, we have to think about what that means uh, for our health. And what it means for me, and the, the takeaway point that I often uh, look at this is that we should be looking at lifestyle choices, things that we do in our life, and, and imagining how that can shift the balance between conflict and cooperation in our microbiomes. And hopefully we'll get more into that when it comes to things like diet. Um, but we have to be attuned to the idea that the, 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 our microbiomes can go bad and they, they can be a source of illness. Yeah. So with that, the over the past decade or so, there's been a lot of research looking at the, the composition between disease state and a healthy control, say autoimmunity or depression. And there's often differences. Um, so there's two parts to this question. How much of a, a causal role has been established or is it a, a bi-directional or is it a, a consequence of the disease? And um, is it a bit limiting to, to think of like heroes and villains considering that can some potentially um, symbionts flip and become pathogenic given, you know, the right or the wrong opportunity? So I'm just trying to tease out like um, cause and effect here that we, we, we know there's an association between an altered gut microbiome and many disease states, but I'm still not um, 100% convinced that that's the, the cause or the consequence. And it's quite mixed, the results. Some say this organism's higher, this one's lower, and blah, 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 in the same disease state. So, yeah, can this um, cooperation conflict help explain the sort of the mixed results? Or is there another layer to, to go and research to help identify the, the causal role of the microbiome? No, I think, I think it, it can. You know, some people, when... Um, they learn that I have an interest in microbiome. They'll say, "Oh, yeah, that that generated a lot of excitement a few years ago, but we're not. It's not. It seems to have petered out. I'm not hearing so much about the microbiome anymore." And the same thing can be true for probiotics. That there was a great deal of excitement that probiotics would be useful in solving diseases, uh, things like gastrointestinal infections, um, perhaps buffering us when we have to take antibiotics and that sort of thing. Uh, but the the big trials, there are a few that do show benefit to probiotics, certainly, but some have argued that it's that the whole idea is, is overhyped. I think this conflict and cooperation um, model of thinking about how we've evolved along with our micro, microbiomes uh, does explain quite a lot of, lot of um, and the successes and some of the uh, disappointments when it comes to you know, microbiome science. And the idea is that we're not we're not passive receptacles of 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 our microbiota, we're not just habitat for them. Um, we are partners, and we our bodies spend a, a huge amount of effort, both in terms of receptors that pay attention to microbial molecular patterns and tell us which microbes are present and what they're doing, and in responding in very sophisticated ways. So I think the fact that we we can't manipulate our microbiomes in ways that can either produce a perfectly healthy state or you know reverse all sorts of diseases. That that's a reflection of the fact that we've co-evolved along with our microbiomes. And there's there's always a two-way street. There's always signals going in both directions. There and there's manipulation. There are microbes that are trying to interfere with our ability to surveil them and to um, we'll say shape the microbiome in a way which is healthy for us. But it is true that we don't have a cure, for instance, for diabetes um, that involves giving a probiotic. We can't cure obesity um, with by giving a you know a pill that contains microbes. 
But that's not to say that the microbiome doesn't play a role in those diseases. It plays a very important role in those diseases. And we're not going to progress until we understand uh, why that happens. And the answer, from my perspective, is that we can look at things like obesity, uh, prediabetes especially, and the insulin resistance state as being a consequence of conflict that we have with our microbes. Yeah. Um, can you describe that? I only just saw you uh, briefly mention that, or uh, sorry, I only caught a little bit of that. But as I understand, you were suggesting that the, the hyperglycemia is almost an adaptation to the conflict where the, the body's needing energy, in, in this case, glucose, to be diverted to the immune system to, to fight off this sort of excessive conflict that's happening in the microbiome. Is that, can you, can you explain better? Sure. Yeah. Um, I mean, these are, these are things that I'm exploring too. And uh, I've written a little bit about uh, the relationship of insulin resistance, um, dietary nutrients and the microbiome, but it's worth pointing out that uh, when we, when we accumulate fat in a way which is unhealthy for us, um, this tends to be the fat which is around our waistlines. So when we're, um, you know, expand buying larger trousers and uh, letting our, our belt out, um, that's a, a consequence that of you know accumulating visceral fat and and fat cells that that packs around our intestines and and along the omentum uh, in in our in our in our guts. That's the fat which seems to be metabolically unhealthy um, and associated both with um, you know problems. Uh, in terms of metabolism, prediabetes and diabetes, hypertension, and of course, obesity. It's, it's no coincidence that that location is also where we have our microbiomes. So you know, the, the majority of the 30 trillion microbes that we have in our bodies exists in our, in our colon and in our guts. Um, and the, the fat that we accumulate when we have a dysbiosis or an altered and potentially more dangerous you know, microbial ecology in our in our in our uh, intestines. I lost my train of thought there. <laughs> so we've got the, the 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 fat mass in and around near the, the microbiome, right? With is a potential energy to to fuel a local immune response against the the microbiome if it's uh, deleterious to to the host. Right. So the there's, it's no coincidence that the majority of, of um, we'll say, dangerously dangerous or metabolically um, adverse fat that we accumulate in our bodies happens to be around our gut. And one of the reasons is that um, that's where our microbiome is. Um, and this, this gives us a clue as to the function of fat. And we're learning um, from studies done in inflammatory bowel disease, for instance, that omental fat and fat in your viscera plays an important role in um, in containing microbes and preventing their uh, ability to escape the place where they're tolerated, which is the lumen of your intestine, and then escaping to, to uh, um, extra intestinal sites where they can cause infection and disease. Um, one of the things that we've learned about the microbiome is that this, this concept of you know, translocation of bacteria is something that is, in a way, it's unavoidable that whenever we eat, we discover that some microbes escape the lumen of the gut, enter the bloodstream, um, they can enter uh, some extra intestinal sites, liver, spleen, et cetera. Um, and we, we, we can detect this even minutes after uh, an animal eats something in an experimental setting. Um, what we're 
what one of the insights uh, that we're discovering is that um, visceral fat seems to play a role in containing um, this escape of microbes um, from the gut. So that yeah. that's a that's a, one of the explanations for why the microbiome seems to be important in whether we accumulate visceral fat or not. Huh. And then you got to this the point of um, thinking about insulin resistance. Um, insulin resistance uh, is the precursor to uh, prediabetes and and frank diabetes. And in no way am I suggesting that diabetes is a good thing. Um, people with diabetes mellitus uh, have a higher risk of infection, uh, suffer a, a whole variety of, of negative health consequences. Uh, but when we, when we look just at insulin resistance, um, this is this is not quite diabetes, and it's the it this is it, this is the state of physiology in which um, our tissues, predominantly muscle, uh, bone, and also fat, uh, have a more difficulty in, in taking up glucose. Um, the one of the functions of insulin resistance, which I've argued about, is that um, insulin resistance tends to divert uh, fuel energy and glucose uh, to cells that lack the GLUT4 receptor. Uh-huh. And importantly, um, there are a couple tissues that are that are relevant to this. The main main one being um, immune cells. So white blood cells they lack a GLUT4 receptor. They don't require insulin to take up glucose. Uh, so when when one is insulin resistance, that is your body's way of shutting off. Uh, energy flow to um, otherwise energy-hungry tissues. Think of like your quadriceps muscles and your legs that we use for walking around. Um, it has a much harder time taking up glucose, and uh, and your body essentially is is shutting off that flow of energy. Uh, it's freeing up energy for the immune system. There are some other things that are happening too, but that's that's the simplest and one of the better explanations for insulin resistance. Um, and we note that insulin resistance is something that happens with dysbiosis. So in in the dysbiotic state, uh, when we're confronted with a greater degree of challenge from the microbiome, um, insulin resistance may actually be doing something useful um, in fueling the increased energetic needs of an activated immune system. Of course, this is bad in the long term, too, right? Um, It's not a great thing to have an activated immune system all of the time. Hmm. Um, It's not a great thing to be diverting energy away from other functions that we we also prioritize. exercise and physical activity uh, being one of them. Uh, people who are insulin resistance, you know, have a tougher time um, because uh, of, of fueling the needs of, of muscle and that sort of thing. So um, the, the take home point here is that uh, dysbiosis, which is kind of a catch all term to think of a, a, a microbiome that's more in conflict with you. Dysbiosis increases one's risk both for a visceral adiposity the accumulation of fat around the waistline and insulin resistance in ways that make sense when we look at it from an evolutionary point of view. Um, the, the fat accumulation serves a function uh, beyond just simple storage of energy. Um, fat, inflammatory fat in the, in the gut plays an important role in containing potentially dangerous pathogens that come from the microbiome. The insulin resistance that occurs seems to play a role both in terms of fueling the increased energy needs of the immune system, and also, uh, we'll say, discouraging uses that would um, that might compete with that. So those are those are some of the take-home points, and this is something which I think is is not well understood. Yeah, yeah, and it really jumped out at me. This, to me, underscores the the potential benefits of understanding things from an evolutionary framework in this uh, 
cooperation and conflict. I think I saw in one of your presentations, you were talking about some sort of um, acute illness. I don't know if it's sepsis in the emergency room where they um, treated hyperglycemic patients. Was it with insulin? And um, there was no benefit to the lowering of blood glucose. So just to contrast, like in integrative medicine and so forth, we often look at these biomarkers, inflammation and elevated blood glucose. And yes, they're sort of pathological, but that sort of whack-a-mole idea of just lowering things for the sake of lowering it, sometimes intuitively it sounds like the right thing to do, but um, maybe with this evolutionary framework, you can understand why there isn't the benefit you expect when you, you lower these um, adverse biomarkers. So can you just clarify there around um, lowering blood glucose and acute crisis what was the condition and sure. what was the outcome absolutely and, and thanks th thanks for bringing that up so the the study that you're referring to um it has a has an acronym that's shortened to the nice sugar study <laughs> n-i-c-e dash sugar and this was a study of uh intensive glucose management in patients that had critical illness and infection or sepsis um and this was a surprising study and they looked at people that were in the intensive care unit who were very very sick with uh, um, with sepsis syndrome uh, which is a syndrome characterized by low blood pressure um, sometimes uh, people will accumulate fluid in the lungs and in body tissues and they require um, you know to be intubated and managed on a ventilator so these are people that are really sick um, and not infrequently perhaps even universally um, that during the, some part of the illness, we'll find that one's blood sugar is markedly elevated. And you don't have to be diabetic to have an increase in blood sugar. And when we've looked at data from our own hospital, um, and we find blood sugars that are, if normal is less than 100 milligrams per deciliter, we'll find blood sugars that are 100, 200, 300, 400, wow. people that didn't have diabetes before. Um, and this has been a curious thing and, and a matter of controversy there is some recognition in the literature of something called stress hyperglycemia. So when something bad happens to you, um, your body enters this, this insulin resistant state. To be unfortunate enough to fall, fall onto the ground and have a major injury. And if the, the hospital would almost certainly recognize that my blood sugar is elevated. Some of that has to do with the release of stress hormones, things like you know adrenaline and um, cortisol produced produce from my adrenal glands, that has the effect of increasing blood sugar. Uh, but if you were to measure my insulin sensitivity, you would find after an injury that I'd be insulin resistant. So this happens in, in people that, that suffer a severe and grave challenge, both from trauma and from infection, and people that don't necessarily have, have diabetes to begin with. So the question is, what should we do about it? And how, how strongly should we intervene? Well, this nice sugar study, they looked at measuring um, a couple different targets. I don't recall the exact targets, but one of them was to bring people closer to normal, give them enough insulin to drive the, the blood sugar down and make them appear more normal. The other state was to let the blood sugar remain a little bit more elevated. What they found was people that in which they attempted to normalize blood sugar had a higher mortality, so oh, a significantly wow. greater risk of death. And wow. this was the opposite of what people imagined was going to happen. We think this is pathology, right? Just like you mentioned, elevated blood sugar is, is bad and we should try to drive it down. But uh, at least in that study, we found that not to be the case. And it wasn't just that study. This is the important part. 
Um, they looked at the, the same phenomenon in children, so pediatric patients with sepsis, and they uh, they enrolled them or either randomized them to a uh, intensive insulin treatment or a we'll say a permissive hyperglycemia group, a group in which the the blood sugar was allowed to be high. Um, in that study also, that study was terminated for harm, for a signal of harm. It looked like more kids were, were uh, dying if they were given more insulin. So this is a, a clue perhaps that um, the way that metabolism works when, when we're very, very ill uh, is complicated and that perhaps some of these things and the way that our body rearranges the flow of glucose and energy in our bodies when we're facing a life-threatening challenge Maybe some of those things are actually useful. And again, this is not to say that diabetes is good for us. Mm, this is to mm. say that some of the pathways that are involved in diabetes, I would argue, are dysregulated and 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 badly messed up in diabetes. Um, but some of these pathways, they probably did evolve to help protect us from um, challenges and help us rearrange how the energy flux and flow in our body happens when we're confronting a, a major um, challenge like infection or trauma. Interesting. And we might pick up that that concept when we look at um, depression shortly, if we get time. Right. I want to go back to the, the conflict, um, back to the gut. Um, just to, to finish up on that, the, the conflict and cooperation, you published a paper a couple of years ago, I think, uh, using this framework to suggest how we can potentially, with um, mostly diet uh, and lifestyle, to help have a microbiome that's more cooperative than in conflict and there's a few dietary constituents that you've identified that seem to be important to promote conflict um so i want to ask you about this and just it, it looks similar to say a, a paleo diet but i think there's some some nuances you know the paleo diet can be seen as quite restrictive and dogmatic um and i'm wondering if some of the benefits of like a paleo is possibly because it's um, promoting more of these these conflict food, uh, sorry, cooperation foods and conflict foods. So, can you just describe the the, the conflict versus cooperation in terms of feeding the microbiome, and, and what are some of the key key uh, dietary constituents you think promote cooperation? Absolutely. Um, well, earlier we talked a little bit about breastfed babies, so babies that drink breast milk. Uh, the, the breast milk contains these human milk oligosaccharides, which are in essence you know, indigestible complex carbohydrates that babies otherwise would not be able to access without having a microbiome. And these seem to be special ingredients of breast milk that evolved to promote the growth of a near monoculture of bifidobacteria. So these bifidobacteria protect the babies. And this is, a, again, the best example of a mutualism or cooperation that occurs between human and our, our microbiomes. So it can happen. And it's interesting that it involves food in some way. And in fact, we are provisioning our microbiome with nutrients, um, special nutrients just for them. And in fact, these uh, milk oligosaccharides, they specifically um, you know, target microbes that uh, you know, certain species and even subspecies of bifidobacteria that appear to be particularly protective um, in terms of preventing childhood diarrhea um, and infection. So, um, we can look at this nutrient provisioning as an example of, of cooperation. It's not just, you know, if we look across the biological world, it's not just breast milk where we see this. We do see um, some examples uh, where, you know, organisms will, will do a transfer of nutrients in ways that, that helps both, both partners. One thing, one thing I like to do is I like to go scuba diving, and you can go up to a, a little coral area, and you can see a feeding station where large predator fish will open their mouths 
and permit smaller, cleaner shrimp and some of the smaller fish to um, to clean their teeth, uh, mm. which is a, it's a remarkable thing to see if you've seen this, um, and it's an amazing thing. Uh, and in effect, it's a transfer of nutrients from one species to another, and it's a, a cooperative arrangement for both of them. So this does happen in nature. Not all not all of nature is you know red in tooth red in tooth and claw. Uh, there we can see examples of, of mutualism around around nutrients. So getting back to our um, our microbiome and human milk oligosaccharide example, uh, it's fair to say that when uh, when one partner uh, provides nutrients to the other partner, uh, that will sometimes promote cooperation. We see this with um, when we eat dietary fiber, uh, so the, from fiber from dietary sources, uh, we'll say from plants, for instance, so complex oligosaccharides uh, that, again, we can't digest, um, but are fermented in the colon and provide about 10% of our nutrient needs. Um, that's a, another good example of uh, what appears to be at least mostly a mutualism. We provide habitat in our intestines that provides um, both the space and the permission for these microbes to grow into numbers that, that where we do not uh, permit them elsewhere in, in the in the gut, um, because it is favorable both for them and for us uh, to digest and provide these these services that that transform otherwise indigestible dietary fiber into short chain fatty acids, which we can take up as as energy. So these are a couple of good examples of cooperation. Um, as far as conflict goes, um, conflict happens when uh, when there are nutrients or resources that are equally available to multiple partners, and that tends to engender competition. Um, you know, in the natural world, the example I use of this is um, think about uh, in a national park in South Africa, um, competition between lions and hyenas over uh, a wildebeest. Um, the nutrient energy in a wildebeest, think about the the carbon and the protein and, and the rest of it, which can be taken up uh, into, into a variety of different organisms. Um, it's equally accessible to the hyena and the, and the lion. And in that situation, that tends to generate conflict. We see this with simple sugars. So as opposed to the complex carbohydrates that we see in dietary fiber, which are not accessible to us, but are accessible to mm. fiber fermenting microbes, glucose is accessible to a whole variety of microorganisms and us. And if you look at the architecture of the human gut, um, we tend to discourage microbial growth in our proximal gut, and that's where we absorb um, simple sugars in our diet. So we have a low pH in our stomach. We right. produce secretory IgA and bile acids that tend to antagonize bacterial growth in the proximal gut. Uh, and the entire biomass uh, tracks pretty nicely along with pH, that the low pH situation in the proximal gut discourages overgrowth of microbes. And that is because we've evolved these features. These are adaptive for us because they tend to tamp down conflict and they reduce comp competition when it comes to absorbing these vital nutrients. So when we have simple sugar in our, in our diet, and we can imagine that might've been rarer in an ancestral environment, but we want, to, we want to monopolize those resources and we don't really want to share it with the microbiome. The sharing happens lower in the intestine. That happens in the colon and that happens with fiber and it happens with fermentation and it involves short chain fatty acids, but we fight over glucose. And that competition uh, can sometimes lead to bad outcomes. So as far as the paleo part of this goes, um, I tend to not be a, a major advocate of the paleo perspective because I do think this conflict and cooperation perspective is better 
But from a paleo perspective, we, we suspect that most of our human antecedents, um, so pre-modern humans, had a lot more fiber in their diet uh, in the, for the most part than, than we do now, um, and certainly way fewer simple sugars. Um, so avoiding industrialized processed foods that is low in fiber and high in simple sugars is something which is at least consistent with both a paleo perspective, but also consistent with this conflict and cooperation perspective. Um, one more thing about fiber, which is that uh, when we don't eat fiber, um, that tends to um, promote the growth of microbes that are, we'll say, less friendly, potentially can become more invasive. Um, and if we're not provisioning them, um, even ones that we think of as being relatively useful and beneficial and might actually help protect us get from things like diabetes, some of these very same microbes, if we, if we don't consume enough fiber, they will actually consume the mucus layer mm. on the intestine to the point where it creates all kinds of problems. Um, so the other lesson when we think about mutualism and our microbiome is that we're happy having lots of microbes, up to 30 trillion of them, mostly in our guts, but we don't want them too close. They need to actually <laughs> stay apart from us, right? Yeah. So we want to have yeah. a nice, big, thick mucus layer. Yeah. If, they're not, if we're not provisioning through our diet with sufficient dietary fiber, they, then, they will graze the mucus to the point where there's very little of it. That causes the microbes to come into close association with our epithelial cells, and that increases this phenomenon we talked about earlier. That is the translocation of micro, microbes um, through the intestinal uh, uh, barrier into the bloodstream where they wreak all kinds of havoc. Um, yeah. Can I say one more thing about that? Oh, yeah, keep going. <laughs> all right, this is fun. I, I love this stuff, I have to say. <laughs> um, so the, the other feature, which I think is a great lesson, and it has to do with this mucus barrier and its importance, um, has to do with emulsifiers yes. that are also in, in many industrialized uh, foods. And uh, a few weeks ago, I went to visit my parents. Um, and my parents, they were, they grew up at the tail end of the, uh, you know, <laughs> They were, at least their parents were children of the of the Great Depression, um, and they they're they're thrifty people, and they don't like to spend a lot of money. Um, and when they go to the grocery store, they tend to buy the cheapest ice cream. So I, I opened up the freezer, I grabbed, I took out the ice cream container, and I look at it, and it says polysorbate 80. And I I told my mom, and I've told her this a bunch of times, please don't buy the cheap ice cream. They tend to have these ingredients in them that are quite harmful to your microbiome and to you. Um, and this is something that we've learned relatively recently. So this ingredient, polysorbate 80, it's an emulsifier. Uh, food manufacturers like it because it increases mouthfeel, actually improves the creaminess of things that, that we eat. It's in a lot of processed foods and th or things like it. Uh, and it's considered by the United States Food and Drug Administration to be, um, I think it's the, the term is uh, generally uh, accepted as safe. So it's thought to be not harmful. So food manufacturers can add this up to a certain level in things like ice cream. The problem is because it's an emulsifier, it also acts as a detergent and it, it essentially washes away the mucus barrier in your gut. Um, so this accomplishes the same thing as a low fiber diet. And especially if you're eating foods that have these sorts of ingredients and you're not eating fiber, um, you're giving yourself a double whammy. This causes the mucus layer to erode and, to, and for microbes to be even closer, increases that likelihood of gut inflammation um, and translocation and some of the, the bad uh, consequences that derive from that. Um, so avoid your polysorbate 80. Polysorbate 80 is a, is a conflict food. And that's the other, other feature that I wrote with my, my co-authors um, 
in the paper that you referred to, uh, co-authors being Helen Wasilewski and Athena Aktipas. Um, we talked about resource competition and conflict, and we termed this idea that certain junk foods, foods that are high in calories and, and low in other sorts of nutrition, um, they're bad for us, not just because they're novel and not just because they are, they're not paleo. They're bad for us because they engender conflict in our microbiome mm. and us. And that's the, that's the special thing. Yeah. Um, you know, like I said, a lot of paleo people tend to be low carb, um, you know, avoiding agricultural grains and that sort of thing. I would argue from a cooperation and conflict perspective that many whole grains actually are probably good for you uh, yeah, because they do provide the fiber and they do provide that nutritional provisioning that benefits um, microbes that tend to engage in a more mutualistic uh, behavior towards us. So that's yeah. the difference between the paleo perspective and yeah. the one that we're putting forward. Yeah, I tend to uh, more than tend to agree. I do agree. Um, the the one other area I I just quickly glossed over in the paper was in terms of conflict, the the fatty acid profile and its interaction with the gut immune system can create tension there. And this to me comes back to like saturated fatty acids again, maybe with the paleo and even this even extreme version now with carnivore diets and things because it's quote unquote natural. We can have you know a lot of saturated fatty acids, et cetera. Um, you know, historically it's been thought about like cardiovascular disease, cholesterol, et cetera, internally, but um, you're more pointing out that it's the potentially the signaling effects within the, the gut lumen that could ha um, create the conflict from from these foods you're eating. Can you um, elaborate on that? Sure. And thanks for bringing that up. That was one of the first papers that I wrote about uh, the microbiome. Uh, was it, The paper was entitled Nutrient Signaling and uh, the Evolution of Infl Infl Inflammation or Dietary Inflammation um, from Foods. And we looked at this, this question of why is it that certain things generate inflammation and others don't? Uh, and why do certain molecules that we gain from our diet, why do they have the signaling properties that they do? And we looked at fat. And I have to say that when we wrote that paper, the conventional wisdom was that fat is bad for you. And I really was trying to explain why is it that certain fats seem to actually generate inflammation. Um, but when we when I looked into it, it occurred to me and my co-authors, um, Melissa Franklin and Chris Kazawa, that one of the features of different kinds of fats was how they interacted with microbes in the microbiome. And we speculated that certain fats are used as, as, as this kind of cheap energy that is equally available to us and microbes and actually might be a conflict food. Um, and that would include, at least in this scheme, certain kinds of saturated fats, not all of them, but certain ones. And other fats, um, well, so those fats that generate conflict, our bodies recognize them and generate inflammation. So this, this happens even in cell culture. We can look at, um, we can put um, intestinal colon cells in a Petri dish, sprinkle satur some saturated fats on top of them, and they will generate um, inflammation in the same way they would do if they were confronted with a dangerous microbe. Again, this, this, this was paradoxical. Why would, why would a dietary nutrient in, in the things that we eat do this? That was the question. But the lesson here was that some fats do it, some don't. Some fats are actually anti-inflammatory, omega-3 fatty acids being the, the prime example of that. And the, the key feature of omega-3 fatty acids and um, these long-chain unsaturated fats in particular is that they tend to be antimicrobial. They actually tend to inhibit the growth of certain kinds of gut pathogens um, or pathogens that, that are elsewhere in our bodies. 
So the idea is that these fatty acids actually do play a role. Um, certain fats inhibit the growth of pathogens and actually are an adjunct to your immune system. So if they're, if they're busy controlling the growth of microbes, then your immune system doesn't have to work as hard and tends to dial back the inflammation. Other mm -hmm. microbes don't, or sorry, other fats don't do this um, and may do the opposite. Because they, it is free and accessible energy, uh, microbes can take them up into their cell membranes, use them for replication, et cetera. Um, those would tend to be um, more dangerous from the immune perspective. And as a result, the body compensates by increasing inflammation. Here's the bottom line. Long chain unsaturated fatty acids like um, uh, EPA and DHA, uh, fish oils, um, those tend to be anti-inflammatory and they also tend to inhibit the growth of pathogens. Um, many other fats don't do this. Uh, and it's not, a, it's not a perfect concordance because fats do seem to have some other signaling properties. Um, but the lesson here is that certain foods that have intrinsic antimicrobial properties tend to be anti-inflammatory and from an epidemiologic perspective, tend to improve overall health. We do know that people that eat a lot of fish and, and societies that, that do this tend to have better health, health outcomes, tend to have more longevity. We haven't seen quite as much of an impact from eating fish oil in pill form, but the dietary um, mm. information that we do have uh, follows this pattern. And I would argue that is because those ingredients have these intrinsic anti-pathogen effects. They make it easier for your immune system to not have to generate so much inflammation to control the microbiome, and that actually causes good long-term health. So that's that's the implication there. And again, it's not just fat, all right? Um, so right now I'm enjoying a glass of grapefruit juice. And this, uh, your, listen, your audience can't see this, so I'm holding up my little bottle of grapefruit <laughs> juice. Grapefruit juice also has a variety of anti-inflammatory properties. Um, and this is thought to be attributed to um, you know, secondary plant compounds, mm -hmm. uh, uh, the flavonoids, um, neuringenin, and there's one called hesperin. Uh, and these ingredients also have very, very strong antimicrobial properties. So as a general rule, I would argue that um, certain foods that are, that are good for you um, are those, or ingredients, I should say, are those that inhibit and, and discourage the growth of pathogens in the microbiome. Um, and this may be one of the reasons why uh, eating citrus is so good for you. And the low-carb crowd, they're not going to be crazy about eating lots of fruit, um, but yeah. I am, in part because yeah. of some of the work that I've done in this area. And I think that uh, there's a, a good logic to it anyway. Very interesting. I, I, uh, it's a fascinating concept, and I like this idea. The immune system is trying to control the pathogens, and by our diet we can... We can ease the the stress on the immune system by taking off the, the pathogenic load. Well, this is now, why it's so good to talk to you, Nathan, because uh, you <laughs> you know you seem to grasp <laughs> the points that we're trying to make, and 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 you get it, get it very easily, which is great. And hopefully your you. audience will too. Yeah, thank you. Um, well, if we've got time, I, that's a huge topic as well. But one of the other areas I, I really wanted to quickly touch upon, and maybe have to come back for a second um, episode on this one, is um. Swinging back to, as I, as I mentioned, mood disorders are uh, obviously coming through um, the Western world, and our practitioners often treat mood disorders, along with gut and microbiome issues. I noticed in one of your podcasts, you had a long discussion around depression. I had the fortune of interviewing Dr. Glenn Gear recently, who's an evolutionary psychologist. Um, we touched upon it, but 
I was hoping to get um, a little bit more information from you around this concept, but we'll also circle back to the microbiome as well. So first of all, this um, depression, if we go back to sort of almost a host defense idea, this is again championed by Randy Ness, this idea that um, depression could be in some cases like a, a host defense to help sort of um, become sort of stuck and ruminate to overcome some sort of social dilemma and you you know forget about everything else and just become so fixated on this one thing and um, potentially over time you can can solve it um compare that to mm. i suppose modern medicine where um we provide things like uh ssris to help us sort of get out of funks which you know um not saying it is the wrong and it can be very helpful for people but from an evolutionary perspective um there's that and then also want to get touch upon then there can be just this inflammatory um sickness behavior which could be coming from the microbiome so first of all from an evolutionary perspective um what's some of the can you elaborate or add some more details or some other concepts around the evolutionary idea of depression sure and first I, I guess i want to caution that um this has not been a major focus of of my interest i I do find it interesting and I love to have yep. these sorts of conversations, but I am not a psychiatrist. Um, I haven't spent a great deal of time developing you know, my own ideas about uh, what may or may not be adaptive about, we'll say, mild depression or, or, uh, or low mood. Um, and it's worth also cautioning that even the people that argue from the perspective that depression may have utility, um, this is not to say that people who are suffering from major depression shouldn't get help. Exactly. Um, and so yeah. I do. I, if anybody's listening is suffering from one of these issues, I want to. I want to make that clear that um, major depression is is a real life threatening problem, and you should seek care. Um, and with that out of the way, I'm gonna. You know, this will just be kind of my speculation about it. Um, but it is one of these areas where where an evolutionary approach tends to kind of flip the script. In terms of what we think about these about problems, most issues that are approached by um, psychiatrists, physicians, the biomedical community, um, we tend to identify uh, problems and diseases and pathology, and be kind of hyper focused on those those kinds of issues. Uh, and then we're also very interested in intervening and blocking and inhibiting whatever pathways seem to be responsible. Um, and this is kind of like thinking about the doctor as a mechanic perspective that the body is like you know, an automobile and it has a variety of different parts, a whole bunch of things can go wrong and do go wrong. And mm -hmm. that we should be able to identify the, the problematic parts, fix them, reverse them and, and go on our way. But in reality, our bodies are far more complicated than that. Um, and that perspective as physician, as mechanic has only gotten us so far. And in fact, we're reaching many more, many, many more roadblocks. And I would say that the treatment of, in psychiatry is one of these, a good example of that, that just because we have powerful, um, molecular techniques that allow us to identify, in some cases, biomarkers and pathways that are important in um, the phenotype of depression, doesn't mean we've had, a, had an equivalent amount of success in preventing it or reversing it. And even, I think you mentioned um, SSRIs, the selective serotonin receptor inhibitors. Um, these are medications that have helped a great number of people uh, but they probably aren't as helpful as we once thought. Mm. That when we when we go back and look at the data, um, some of the trials perhaps overstated the impact that those medications had on patients. 
Um, this is not to say they don't help people. And if anybody happens to be taking these things, I'm not at all advising that you should stop. But uh, but we, we're, we're not making the kind of progress that we would like uh, when it comes to things like major depression. And like Randy Nessie, and like many of the other people that have written in this area, I agree that um, bringing an evolutionary perspective is likely to, to shed some light on it. Um, and when I mentioned flipping the script, that is to say that some things that seem bad may not be as bad as we thought in different contexts. So this is very much like the, the blood sugar story I told earlier, in that changing how our metabolism treats and deals with glucose and insulin uh, changes during critical illness um, in ways that may possibly be adaptive or beneficial in that setting. So this is a conditional adaptive response that in, the, in a particular environment that may be useful. It may also be useful in certain environments to have, um, I'm gonna limit this to mild depression as yep. Randy Desi does, uh, to have, have a more def depressed affect and behavior that some of the changes that, that accompany um, that behavior may actually be in some ways functional. Doesn't mean they're perceived as a good thing, doesn't mean that, that they're not accompanied by suffering, et cetera, but they may be functional. So that has been a major focus of interest of a lot of evolutionary psycho psychologists, um, some evolutionary psychologists like Randy Messi uh, and many others. And I'm not super equipped to say exactly what um, I think is the best um, solution to this problem and say, well, what exactly is adaptive here? Um, I, would, I would tell you that I'm skeptical of the idea that ruminating or thinking about one's problems when one is depressed is useful. <laughs> yeah. Having had some mild depression myself, <laughs> when I think back about the time when I would just think and say, okay, what's what's really wrong here? How can I fix it? I didn't have any success. And I think that that <laughs> is, is probably just, you know, complete anecdote, but I, I just am skeptical that that's what's going on. Yeah. Um, one, bring it more into the microbiome realm, uh, which is where I'm, I am comfortable. Um, I think it is interesting uh, that there are, um, that there is a microbiome story when it comes to uh, depression and mood. Um, and one of the one of the uh, writers uh, and one of the hypotheses that I like the best um, this is called the Pathos D hypothesis. Is this one that you've heard of? No. Okay. Um, it was published in Molecular Psychiatry, 2013. Um, it's called the Evolutionary Significance of Depression in Pathogen Host Defense. So again, it brings it right back to where I'm comfortable. This idea <laughs> that we're in conflict with microbes and that um, uh, this may get, have some explanatory power. Probably doesn't explain everything. Uh, and I, I tend to actually agree with people that say that suggest that, you know, human behavior is, is massively complicated. Um, we are social creatures. Uh, mood mediates a whole variety of kind of changes in um, both social engagement interactions, whether or not we might get hurt by fighting with somebody, um, whether or not we're going to take various risks, um, and that, in fact, mild depression may be adaptive in a whole bunch of different ways. But one of the, one of the things that seems to be important is uh, that depression accompanies sickness behavior. So when you're sick, you tend to not want to go out and party. You're not going to be super social and happy and, and upbeat. You tend to be kind of achy and in pain and withdrawn and maybe trying to seek uh, support from close affiliates and family members. Um, and that sick, the sickness behavior part of depression, um, that's part that I can, I can understand. And this hypothesis about pathos D, um, they've shown that many of the immune um, 
modifying uh, SNPs. So these are single nucleotide polymorphisms that that you can see in, the, in our genomes. Mm -hmm. That the SNPs or mutations that are responsible for for causing a more robust immune response. A lot of these same mutations are associated with depression. So it, it kind of links the immune system and mood in a way that really hadn't been before. Um, and I found that very compelling. Let's bring it back to micro microbes. Um, a lot of the information that we have about microbiome and mood comes from animal models. Uh, and there, there are two things worth pointing out. One is that you can inject animals or humans with um, the cell wall constituent of gram-negative bacteria that is endotoxin. Um, also important in leaky gut, by the way. Uh, and if we, if you give an animal endotoxin, they become very withdrawn. Uh, they they exhibit anxiety behavior, and they they are in, they induce a, a behavioral phenotype that looks a lot like depression. And we can you, we people by we I mean biomedical researchers have convinced volunteers to be injected with endotoxin too. It does a bunch of things. It changes gene expression. It generates a fever. It makes you not want to eat. Um, and it recapitulates a lot of the findings that we have when we're sick, and it also changes mood, um, and it causes depressive-like features. So we do know there's a tight connection between our immune response to potentially dangerous organisms and mood. Um, I, I suspect because we see this in mice and in humans, and we last shared a common ancestor, you know, almost 200 million years ago, that provides very strong evidence that natural selection is maintaining this trait over a very, very long time frame, and that some of these behavioral changes may in fact be adaptive or beneficial under some circumstances. Um, it's not been completely fleshed out exactly why that is, um, but I would argue that when you're sick, um, you probably shouldn't behave as if you're not sick. Yeah. You know, Your body should use glucose energy in a different way towards promoting your immune system. You probably um, shouldn't take behavioral or social risks that are unlikely to pay off. Depression and anxiety um, that we see when we inject someone with endotoxin, or if we gavage a mouse with E. coli and just overwhelm their guts with lots of E. coli, it does the exact same thing. All right. Um, interestingly and kind of excitingly, we see the opposite with certain probiotics. There are research studies that have um, yeah, given supplemental uh, bifidobacteria, that's the same microbe we see in breastfed babies, a great example of mutualism. Um, so these are, but these are adult mice that are being given large doses of bifidobacteria. Um, it changes their behavior. Uh, that, that tends to make um, animals less anxious. So one of the ways that we study this is a bunch of different ways. One way is that you put a mouse into an open field um, an enclosure. Um, most mice tend to stay, like, stay hidden. They're not crazy about being out in the open. Um, but a less anxious, supposedly less depressed mouse will spend more time exploring it out in the open. And you can give a probiotic and change a mouse's behavior in that way. Um, a really neat study involved actually swapping out the microbiomes of two mice from two different providers. <laughs> and it, we, we discovered in this study um, by uh, Bursick and colleagues that you could... Um, you could make a brave mouse timid and a timid mouse brave, mm -hmm. essentially, using the same kind of a model, uh, by changing out their microbiomes. So microbiomes have a lot to do with whether one is um, exhibits these depression-like kinds of behaviors. So probiotics antagonize them. E. coli and pathogens induce them.
Um, I think that's telling us something interesting. I don't yeah. have all the answers in this regard, uh, but it really does tell us um, that one, the microbiome is important. It does mediate a lot of these gut brain access phenomena, which are very useful. It doesn't suggest that you can just go to the to um, you know, their supplement store, or grocery store, buy a probiotic and cure your depression. It probably is more complicated than that. But on the other hand, um, it does have implications for, we'll say, healthy lifestyle uh, and healthy mood. Um, and I would predict, based on the scheme that I've laid out here, that if one were to eat foods that tend to antagonize conflict, reduce the number of pathogens, et cetera, that those would also tend to have uh, exhibit changes um, in terms of these anxiety behaviors and possibly depression also. Mm. That's a prediction. Uh, it's a prediction which is borne out uh, by and large with um, animal model research involving mice. Um, it is harder to find evidence of that in people, but there are some small trials that do suggest that, that is the case. Yeah, I think um, Professor Felice Jacker, who's here in Australia, has done some research using whole food diets, as I understand, or maybe Mediterranean diets, and shown in depressed patients as a as a therapeutic trial that um, has benefited their their mood states and i wonder if it ties into this cooperation and conflict that there has fewer saturated fatty acids more fiber less sugar etc less emulsifiers etc it's um, yeah even, even if you don't accept the um the evolutionary argument um which i, I agree is not fully fleshed out and we don't really understand exactly what's going on here since much of the science is new um, but looking at the molecular basis of it, because we do know that inflammation tends to be associated with a more depressed mood and people that have high people in, that are in inflammatory states, uh, people who are sick, people who have COVID, people who have long yep. COVID, um, people that uh, have high, num high um, levels of inflammatory biomarkers, they tend to have a more depressed mood. Um, and we do, and we know that diet can directly impact those those things. That some of these inflammatory uh, molecular pathways that are involved in um, that are involved in obesity, um, prediabetes, uh, are also involved in low mood. And we can we can we can potentially have an impact on that with diet and healthy lifestyle. Absolutely. Yeah, I wonder if there's a subset of patients that. It is the rumination, you know, that they may be metabolically healthy and have a good diet, that there's some thing they need to resolve. But maybe for the bulk of particularly the Western population, it's it's more this sort of lifestyle fueled, if not induced, um, inflammation, potentially coming from the the, the microbiome that's could be well yes. impacting the mood. Right. Those are good points. Um and again, just to kind of repeat what I said earlier, I don't have all the answers when it comes to uh, being able to tease apart these competing ideas, it is very likely that um, depression and anxiety are pleiotropic, that they have, um, that they're, they're caused by a bunch of a variety of different things, that they, um, that they can be potentially functional or, or useful in, in a bunch of different ways, and that they're not always useful, right? Yeah. <laughs> that's, yeah. that's the other lesson here is that I think many of us would prefer to have our moods a little bit better most of the time, <laughs> <laughs> right? Absolutely. Well, we've gone through yeah a number of topics. It's been fascinating. I could continue talking to you, but uh, I'm mindful of your time, that you're you're busy writing. So, just to wrap up, key take-home messages, and we'll talk about some of your the resources you, you offer. Yeah, what's your sort of I suppose take-home message around 
evolution, the microbiome, and how it can influence health and disease? Well, I'd say unlike some other evolutionary um, hypotheses that relate to lifestyle and diet, um, the, the paleo concept or this idea of gene environment and mismatch, that we are stone-aged people living in a modern environment, um, that only gets us so far in understanding um, why it is that certain things make us sick and other things might make us healthy or keep us healthy. That a better way to approach that problem is one that thinks about our relationship with the microbial world and that we've co-evolved uh, on this planet along with microbes since the very beginning of multicellular life and that that has huge implications. Uh, and our bodies invest a, a great deal of effort in trying to maintain a microbiome that is less harmful and more helpful to us. Um, that we can sometimes help that along by making certain lifestyle choices, eating certain diets, et cetera, or we can make things far, far worse. Um, and these things map on quite nicely to things that we know from epidemiolo epidemiologic studies about what is good for us and what is bad for us. Um, but there is something to be said for this idea that there are conflict foods that, t that increase the likelihood of, of conflict in our bodies that can contrib contribute to chronic diseases. But we should also think, and we haven't talked about this, there are conflict drugs, there are medications, medicines, things that we take that can that can potentially do the same. There are likely to be some supplements that we could think of as being conflict supplements uh, and others that do the opposite. Um, so that perhaps we could leave that for another discussion another day. Um, one of the, you mentioned that I'm, I'm doing some writing and I am writing a book. Uh, the working title is Conflicted. And the idea is that we do have, although we are a holobiont and we should consider ourselves a composite organism of human and microbe, both mammal and microbe, um, that conflicts within the hollow biont are what can best explain uh, health and disease. So um, there will be chapters on conflict food, chapters on conflict drugs, uh, conflict procedures, things that I see in the hospital that might make people worse, uh, and also uh, conflict sleep. Um, I'm, all, I'm fascinated by the, our, the requirement in my specialty that we have to stay up all night. That has some negative mm -hmm. impacts on our microbiomes and does bad things to our health. Um, it's not just uh, a mismatch in a paleo situation, although it is that, but the underlying dynamic, uh, the reason why all these things are bad for us has to do with increasing conflict between ourselves and our microbiomes. Well, thank you. Well, he's got the scoop today that you're writing a book and um, hopefully, maybe we can catch up in the future and cover off some of those chapters that we didn't talk about today because, yeah, they're fascinating. I love how you're combining those two areas. I think it's the certainly uh, the missing link perhaps between this sort of evolutionary framework and and the microbiome so kudos to you good luck with your writing well, thank uh, you nathan before your book comes out where, where can people learn more about you and your 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 work and, and writings well thank you um you can put my name into google scholar and come up with uh you know scientific literature that i've contributed to um joe alcock and google will oftentimes work uh, i also have a blog that I, um, I'm currently contributing to more than I have in the past. That is evolutionmedicine.com. So one word, evolutionmedicine.com. Uh, that's where you can find information about me, um, a list of my writings, and some of the things that I've been writing about most recently. And on Twitter, I am at Joe Alcock, MD. Brilliant. We'll put all those in the show notes. And yeah, I recommend topping onto your blogs. I think, yeah, there's plenty of great content 
in around evolution and COVID-19 as well, which we didn't get to, to touch upon, but um, maybe in the future. So thanks again, Joe. Good luck with the writing. And I had a blast um, diving into all the, the geeky stuff around microbiome and evolution. Thank you. I enjoyed it. Thank you. For useful links and resources, make sure you check out the show notes. The information provided in this episode is for educational purposes only and is not intended to be a substitute for health and medical care. Always consult a healthcare professional for medical advice.